If you would turn with me or listen on as I read Romans chapter 8, verse 34. As I indicated last time, uh, I had prepared a sermon based on those two verses and realized verses 33 and 34, realized that I really, in fact, had two sermons. Here's the second sermon. Why don't I read verses 33 and 34 together, though? Uh, The sermon deals exclusively with verse 34, beginning in verse 33 of chapter 8 of the book of Romans. Hear God's word. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, who is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are for your word. We praise you that uh, you give us such rich and mighty promises. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you bring these promises to us through the preaching and through your ministry. And we ask that you would continue to do so, and even increasingly so. In Jesus' name, amen. I think the overarching A point that I've been making throughout these sermons on Romans chapter 8 should be clear by now. If if I asked you to summarize it in one word, I hope you could all very easily answer that question. The answer is assurance. What's the doctrine? The doctrine's assurance. My assurance of salvation. And what I've been stressing here, uh, as Martin Lloyd-Jones does in his sermons on these verses, is the connection between doctrine and And assurance. If you want to have assurance, you need to know the doctrine. You can't arrive at assurance, uh, or or let me put it like this assurance isn't a feeling, it's more than a feeling. It comes through a knowledge. If you read 1 John, uh, a knowledge of the truth, by the way. If you read 1 John, which I read from a a bit in the reading of the law, he says, By this we know, by this we know, by this we know. If you read uh, that whole epistle, you'll see he says it uh, ten times or more. It's a matter of knowledge. And you need to know the truth. That's the only way to be sure. This is how he puts it. Lloyd-Jones. He says, here we find, and he's speaking of these verses, that the comfort and assurance the apostle gives us is based directly upon doctrine. If you desire to have real assurance of your salvation, the firmer your grasp upon Christian doctrines, the greater your assurance will be. So that's the path that we must all try to walk together. We've got to grasp the doctrines as fully as we possibly can. And then hope by God's grace to arrive at assurance. What does assurance mean? Assurance means that I am sure. It means I'm persuaded of what? By the way, Paul says later on, I'm persuaded. Verse 38, what am I persuaded of? Well, I'm persuaded of this, that I'm a child of God. I am loved of God, even from all eternity, that he's foreknown me, he's predestined me, he's justified me. I'm right with God now and forever. He'll glorify me. I, I don't just know these things, but I'm sure of these things. The man, as I've been saying over and over again, that Paul is portraying in verses or chapters 5 through 8 is not simply the man who's justified, but the man who's justified and knows it. And so he knows that God is for me. That's what he knows. Do you see how personally Paul puts this? He says, if verse 31, if God is for us, we could we could uh, just as much put that in 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 a personal sense. He's including all of believers when he says for us. But let's make it a personal matter. If God is 
for me. The man who has assurance is sure of that. God is for me. And therefore I'm confident as I go to him as a son. My heart isn't condemning me. If my heart condemns me, John says, well, God is greater than my heart. Thank God. But if my heart doesn't condemn me, 1 John 3, 21, then we have confidence before him. And so we go to him in prayer and he will grant to us whatever he asks. Doctrine is essential to this, to this kind of assurance. And certainty is only possible, as Calvin says, when our faith is supported by the word of God. Well, there are two doctrines which are present in these two verses. Doctrines, uh, let us see, which assure us of our salvation. The first is justification. Who shall bring a charge? It's God who justifies. Verse 33. This is a verdict which he alone renders. First Corinthians chapter four, uh, verse five, I think he says, it's the Lord who judges. It's the same thought. He says, you're not in a position to judge me. I, I, can't, I don't even judge myself, Paul says. Though I'm not aware of any blame, it's the Lord who judges. It's the same thought. And let us see, Paul says, the thought of verse 33, if God has justified us, if he has judged us and found us righteous in Christ, no charge shall be admitted against us. That's the thought. That's the doctrine in verse 33. But let us admit this does not resolve everything. For it is one thing to assert that God is the one who justifies I would even go so far as to say Satan would grant that. No one is disputing God's the one who justifies. But it's another thing to be sure that he has, in my case, that he has justified me. I have no trouble seeing that God the Father is the judge. But what is his verdict with respect to me? Again, that's the issue of assurance. Am I sure with respect to my own salvation? Do I have a valid claim to the verdict by which... I am assured that God has justified me. Now, that is the answer that Paul supplies in verse 34, where he appeals to the second doctrine. The first doctrine is justification. The second doctrine is the work of Christ. I doubt there are any two doctrines more important than these. Justification and the work of Christ. You see how he speaks of that in verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, who furthermore is risen, and so on. And that work, let us see is the basic, the basis of God's justifying verdict. On what basis does he justify us? On the basis of the work of Christ. Let me put it like this. If we ask the question, on what basis does God justify us and still remain true to his justice, since it is the opposite of justice to justify the wicked, as God says in the Old Testament, he could not remain just... And justify the wicked as uh, those who are wicked or because of their wickedness. The answer to the question. How does God justify the wicked and remain true to his justice? How does he remain just and the justifier of the elect? The answer is not found in ourselves. We don't appeal to our wickedness or our sinfulness. The answer is found in what Christ has done for us. That's the answer. And there we find not only the grace of God. But we find the justice of God. We find every demand and every promise of the gospel fulfilled. God's justice. Found at the cross. God justifying sinners by condemning the son. That's the answer. And that's what makes the thought of condemnation for those. 
for whom he died so unthinkable. You see, we bring the two doctrines together, justification and the work of Christ. It's because God the Father already condemned our sin in the Son at the cross. He already punished it there in full. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the first and the leading assertion of Romans chapter 8. And so verse 34, as that now becomes our focus, must be seen as a summary of the main facts of the gospel. Facts which are not just stated. He doesn't just throw them out. But which are stated as uh, uh, the basis of God's verdict in justifying. Facts which have a direct bearing, that is, on the sinner's justification before God. Uh, Let us see. This is not a comprehensive statement. But certainly, in what Paul says in verse 34... We have uh, a wonderful and a very full, though not comprehensive, summary of the gospel. The main facets of Christ's work, which address specifically the question whether any should be able to condemn God's elect. To what does Paul appeal in answer to that question? He appeals to these four things. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the session of Christ, that is, he seated at the right hand of God, and the intercession of Christ. And it is important to note, as he says, the last two words of the verse, for us, who also makes intercession for us, uh, that it's important to note that each of these four works or four aspects of his one work are presented to us in his mediatorial capacity. These are things that Christ does, not for himself. He doesn't die for himself, or he has no sin. He does not achieve a perfect righteousness for himself, or he was already righteous. He was God himself. He does these things for us. He does these things for me. In order to save me, in order to persuade me and assure me that God is for me. And so we're considering here Christ's work as our mediator. As our surety and great high priest, what he does for us and for our salvation. That's the emphasis of verse 34. What does he do? Well, let me briefly mention uh, the four points. Each of which in its own way refutes uh, any claim to condemnation. First, Christ's death. Now, I'm briefly mentioning these. And you'll say, why are you doing that? Well, stay with me. He dies. Who shall condemn? It's Christ who died. Just by asserting that, he's he's sweeping away any sense that any could condemn us. He's saying, as the hymn writer says, I I don't remember who it was. Was it Wesley? I'm not sure. He says, uh, it, it wasn't Wesley. I don't remember who. But in my place condemned he stood. Now he was condemned already. Will God condemn me now? That's what I see at the cross. He was condemned for me. He died for me. There's nothing left for me. He died in the place of sinners, even me. He died for my sins. Now, this was something Luther, I don't know where, but Luther, whenever the devil would accuse him or his conscience would would accuse him, he would simply say, Christ has died. But that's not all that is true. Christ was also raised, Paul says. Furthermore, yes, rather, Christ was raised. Why was he raised? Well, Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 24, for our justification. His resurrection has a direct bearing on our justification. It achieves our justification. He dies for our sins. He's raised for our justification. There the sentence of condemnation which was placed upon the son is overturned. 
And he is declared to be the righteous son of God, the righteous mediator of the elect. And in him, we are seen to be righteous along with him. But go beyond that. That's not the full truth. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Having purged away our sins, he was seated at the right hand of God. That's the beginning assertion of the book of Hebrews. That's how he begins to explore the, media, uh, the mediatorial work of Christ as our great high priest. He, he put away sins. What did he do? He sat at the right hand of God. He went up into heaven. And why is he there? Well, in, in one sense, you could say he's there because he has every right to be there. He's the son of God. But that does not grasp the full truth. He's there because he's entitled to be there, not simply as the son of God, but as our great high priest. Having died, having purged sins, he entered into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. That's why he's there. And what's he doing there? He's interceding, number four. He's interceding for us, Paul says. It's interesting to note, just as an aside, that this is one of two places where Christ's intercession is mentioned Verse 34 of Romans chapter 8, and then famously in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. He ever lives to intercede for us, so he's able to save us to the uttermost. That's amazing just to think about. All of these in their own way of having uh, ha- have the power to turn aside uh, the, the, the accusation, the condemnation, the condemning heart or the accusations of Satan. And in a sense, I could have preached a four-point sermon on each of those four points. But I think it is better to look at the verse in the way that I believe Paul is is indicating to us that these things must be seen as a whole. They must be taken together as a complex, four aspects of one work. Now go back and compare verse 33 and 34. In one, he speaks of the actions of the Father. It is... Who shall bring a charge? It is God who justifies. Justification is his action. It's what he does for the sinner. God the Father. But immediately in verse 34, answering what is in essence the same question, who shall bring a charge? Verse 33, who shall condemn? Verse 34, we notice a striking change in emphasis. It is God who justifies. Verse 34, it is Christ who died. Yes, rather, who was raised and so on. Verse 34. And beginning in verse 34, if in in verses 31 through 33, it was the actions of the father. God is for us. Who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son and so on. It was the actions of the father. Now in verse 34, it is the actions of the son. Verse 32, it's the father who gives the son. It is God who justifies. Verse 33, verse 34, it is Christ who died. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of of Christ. And that continues to be the emphasis. The work of Christ, the love of Christ and so on. Until we get to verse 39. When he says that none of these things shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so he says here's the work of the Father. Here's the work of the Son. And together they're assuring us. That our justification is certain. That's the point I want to really try to emphasize here. The way verse 33 leads to verse 34. And even the way the ideas within verse 34, one idea leads to the next. There's a progression here. It should be clear that these two things, the actions of the father and the actions of the son, are not set at odds or in contrast. That isn't why Paul sets them side by side. He's not saying on the one hand and on the other hand. But as they are set side by side, both in answer to he who charges and he who condemns, 
it should be it should be clear that both secure the same thing by their actions, namely the sinner's justification. The sinner's justification whereby he is assured that none can lay a charge to his account and none can condemn successfully. But I want to stress this is not just the same point made differently. They're both acting, but they're doing the same thing. No, that's not the idea here. The work of the father and the work of the son are not the same. They are unique, separate works done by separate persons within the blessed trinity. The work of the father is not the work of the son, nor is the work of the son the work of the father. Yet as distinct works, they harmonize in such a way that our justification is most clearly seen when they are considered together as one unified whole, as one unified work. Our justification, I say again, uh, the glory of it, the grace of it, the certainty of it shines most brightly Brightly, when we see the Father and the Son in their mutual relation, together securing our justification, the Father acting upon the Son, the Son acting upon the Father, thereby justifying the sinner. Do you see how, how glorious, how certain our justification is in light of that? Well, I think you will if you look at verses 33 and 34 in that light, and especially verse 34. It clear, looking at it like this, the reciprocal relations of the father and the son, the reciprocal actions of the father and the son, clarifies what is meant here by the phrase, it is Christ who died. Who shall condemn? It is Christ who died. What's he saying? Well, look at the action of the father first with respect to the death of Christ. To say Christ has died is not to take the father's actions out of you. For it was he who was pleased to smite the son, as he says in Isaiah 53. The father, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Uh, The chastisement for him was placed upon him. By whom? By the father. And by his stripes we are healed. And like sheep we have gone astray. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. It's the same thought in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He didn't spare his son. Who? The father. He delivered him up for us all. He laid our iniquities upon him. He smote him upon the cursed cross. It was the father who inflicted the stroke of justice upon the son. Even his own beloved son. It's what he did for us. Do you remember what Peter says in his Pentecost sermon? He says, uh, you laid hands on him, but it was according to uh, the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. It was the Lord who determined to do this. It was the Lord himself who did it. It was the good pleasure of the father. What was he doing? Well, I've been saying it. I'll say it again. He was condemning the son that we might be justified. Isaiah goes on to say that. Let me just, I I won't try to, to quote it. He says, verse 
Verse 11, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. The father condemns the son. The many are justified. Or as Paul says in another place, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Who made him? The father, the Lord. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Notice again what he's saying. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. It's the work of the father, but it's not solely the work of the father. Go on, Paul says, and look at the action of the son. For in death, he too was acting. He was acting as a priest who offers. And what he offers is himself as an offering for sin. Let me give the first of many quotes from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. This is where the sermon might get a bit long. We'll see. Verse 26. He then uh, has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He does so willingly, he says, in obedience to the Father. John 10, verses 17 and 18. He says, no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down willingly. For this reason, the Father is pleased with me. Because I lay down my life for the sheep and I take it up again. You see, he's saying, no no one takes it from me. I offer myself freely. I am their great high priest. In dying, we must not see Jesus Christ. However strongly we make the first point, the Father is laying our sin upon him. He's condemning him. He's inflicting the stroke of justice upon him. We must not see Jesus Christ there as a passive victim suffering the justice of the Father. Rather, to say it is Christ who died in answer to the question, who shall condemn, is equally to affirm what the Son did for us as our great high priest. Here then is the son offering himself and the father smiting his son, but also accepting what he offers and thereby justifying the many. So too does this thought clarify the nature of his intercession. Paul says it is Christ who died. He ends the thought who also makes intercession for us. This thought, I mean, clarifies what is meant by intercession And what is accomplished by it. Hugh Martin in his book, The Atonement. This book, I I put it before you to recommend it so you can see it so that you can desire to hold it for yourself as your own copy. Hugh Martin says he's speaking of this verse, verse 34. The answer to the charge. Who shall bring who who is he who condemns the answer to to the charge drawn first from the atonement? It is Christ who died is not held to be complete till the intercession is brought into view. Do you see what Martin is saying? He's he's saying, we we, we can't actually answer the question as Luther did by saying it is Christ who died. We must push on. We, We have to go all the way with the thought. We have to be able to also say, who also intercedes for us. What is meant by that thought? And how is it clarified by seeing the mutual and reciprocal relation of the father and the son in securing the sinner's justification in his work of intercession referred to both here and in Hebrews chapter seven, verse twenty five. 
it ought to be clear that the son is interceding to the father. It is an action of the son with respect to the father. So that intercession, much more than death, envisions the relation of the son to the father and the father to the son. But his intercession as the great high priest of the elect is offered to the father for the elect. That is for us. As for instance, we find him saying in John chapter 17, where he says, uh, verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see, Jesus is expressing his relation to the Father, but also his relation to the elect. It should be clear based upon what he's expressing in those two verses. That the plea of the son in the work of intercession is that the will of the father formed in eternity might be carried on by the son. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you've given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And it should be clear furthermore that the intercession of the son does not have in view anything of the nature of persuasion. As though the father was disinclined to save us and can only be persuaded by the son to do so in his work of intercession. No, the father does not ask the son to persuade him of anything that he is unwilling to do. For it was the father himself who appointed his son as the great high priest of his people based on a prior eternal relation of love. It was his will that the son should save the elect and that by his work none should perish. And so too it was by his appointment that the son stands in heaven as the great high priest and intercessor of the elect. It was the father who appointed him a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It was the father's or it is the father's will that Christ should intercede. But returning to the son in his work of intercession. It should be equally clear. That it is only as the death of Christ as Hugh Martin says. Passes over without break and blends into permanent function of intercession that we have a true conception of his work, as well as an answer to the to, to, to he who condemns. His death passes over without break and blends into permanent fu- the permanent function of intercession. The work that he begins at Calvary, he carries on forever in heaven. Death and intercession belong together. That's the thought. And that seems to be the thought present in the apostle's mind when he adds to the thought of his death the words, yes, rather, in the King James. It is Christ who died, yes, rather. Or in the ESV, more than that. As though to suggest something more is needed. It isn't enough to say in answer to he who condemns, it is Christ who died. 
It is Christ who died. But even beyond that, it was necessary that he be raised and that he be seated at the right hand of God and that there he should stand forever as our intercessor and great high priest. Something similar to that uh, seems to be the thought of the apostle when he says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 17. He says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. That's the same thought here. So likewise, John assures us in 1 John chapter 1 verses or, or 2 verses 1 and 2. 1 John 2 verses 1 and 2. That we have an advocate with the Father. That's the same thought. An advocate, an intercessor. It's the same thought. We have an advocate with the Father who is also the propitiation for our sins. Do you see how naturally these two thoughts blend together in the mind of the apostles? They spoke of them in the same breath. One passes over, as Martin says, without break and blends into permanent function of intercession. He is our advocate who is also the propitiation for our sins. You see, the thought is reversed in a way. If you lead with the death, as Paul does, then you say, you know, he's also the intercessor. Or or in John, he reverses it. He's our advocate. He's our intercessor. But he's also the propitiation. He died for us. The two thoughts blend together. And each thought is seen to include the other. And you really can't speak of one without speaking of the other. You cannot conceive of the work of Christ truly without conceiving of both aspects. Yes, he is both. The propitiation of our sins and our advocate before the Father. But let us see, he is neither if he's not both. He's not an advocate if he's not the propitiation. He's not the propitiation if he's not our advocate. For his work of intercession must be made in terms of an objectively valid plea. One which answers to God's justice, his grace, his will for the elect. What then will he plead as our intercessor, if not his death for us? And yet will he die for us as our priest and yet not present what he offers by way of intercession to the father? Shall he not go to the father having died and declare to him, Holy Father, I have done your will. I have accomplished all that you have given me to do. These are mine. I have died for them. As he begins to do by way of anticipation in the great High priestly prayer, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. Those are the words which are ever on the lips of our Savior and intercessor in heaven. Oh, but look here, Paul says. He not only dies, but he is raised and so seated and beyond that, he makes intercession for us. And on the basis of that blood... That is, on the basis of what is offered, he enters into heaven as our intercessor. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with greater and more perfect uh, tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of the creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all. Having obtained eternal redemption, verse 24, 
He says, Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He enters. He enters on the basis of his own blood, on the basis of his own death. Verse 26, he's appeared to put away sins. Where? In heaven. By the sacrifice of himself. He doesn't just show up in heaven as our great high priest and intercessor. He passes into heaven by way of his blood. In just the same way we are bid to come. By means of the new and living way, even the blood of Jesus Christ, we are to enter into the veil where he is. In just the same way he got there. Having made a sacrifice for sin, he opened the way both for himself and for us. Equally does it say of him, Chapter 10, verse 12 in Hebrews, this man, after having offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Each aspect, his death on the cross and his place in heaven, when considered as priestly actions, blend together into one unified work and one unified answer to the question, who is he who condemns? Who is he who condemns? The answer is this, it's Christ who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who seated the right hand of God, and who also makes intercession for us. And so he is able, the writer to the Hebrews says, to save us to the uttermost. Why? Because he ever lives to make intercession for us. He died. On the basis of that death, he was raised. He went into the presence of the Father. And there he stands forever as my advocate, as my intercessor. And so having rescued the elect from condemnation on the cross, he keeps them for the promised inheritance by interceding for them and therefore becomes their eternal advocate and helper. And so then the argument is complete. God is the judge and he has justified. Verse 33, it is God who justifies. Not only that, but he justifies on the basis of a true justice exercised on the cross. Verse 32, verse 34. And even beyond that, Christ stands in heaven as our eternal advocate. And if any should bring a charge or if any should seek to condemn, let them appeal to the father as the judge or the son as the advocate. Such is the force of the argument found in these two verses. Let any of our accusers see if they can overturn the verdict of God. Do you understand the doctrine? The doctrine which assures us here. Do you see how the work of Christ comprehended in its totality and in its relation to the work of the Father is what assures us that, the, that God's verdict has permanent validity, permanent validity in heaven. God's verdict of justification can never be overturned. Yes, God has justified us. On what basis? On the basis of the work of his own son. And should any come along and dispute it, Satan or any other, let your response simply be this. It's Christ who died. Yes, rather, who was raised and who is seated at the right hand of God and who is even now interceding for me. Let that be your response. And I assure you that will be enough. For that which satisfies the courts of heaven will be enough to quiet your own doubting heart and silence the accusations of Satan. Let us simply say, as Luther did, Christ has died and only add a little more along with Paul. Yes, rather, and all these other things. And we will know what it is, as John says, 
to have confidence before God. Amen. And let us come to the table together.